CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Tuesday, whatever today is. 22nd. Thank you, Dang, you know your stuff. I'm Tuesday, trying. October 22nd. But of course, you'll be hearing this Lord knows when because it's a podcast. So anyway, as we do uh, with every bonus segment, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce him or herself. In this case, himself. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Peter Copeland. Okay, well, that's a literal. Uh, they've done nothing but the facts. Uh, it's, it's like an interrogation. I'm going to give you my, uh, what is a D where they only like the t- dog tag number or whatever. All right. You asked me a question. I answered the question. All right, Senator. On his lawyer, meanwhile, is whispering in his ear. I will now uh, add a little bit to it. Peter Copeland is his distinguished journalist at, for many years, uh, and he just wrote a book called Finding the News, Adventures of a Young Reporter, uh, and it's, it's about his life in journalism. And I'm now, uh, Peter, going to read my favorite part of the book. Is that okay with you? If I yes, read my please. Pa- Thank you. Paper, et cetera, book? This talks about uh, uh, Peter's college days. He goes, I went to a college uh, in Wisconsin called Lawrence where I met a young reporter very early on who influenced my life more than anyone else. Benny Jarofsky, what a genius. Every day of my life, I've practiced the lessons that he's taught me. Is there a hook? Is there a hook? Can we get the hook on the guy? Okay, that is not everybody. That is not in the book. Not even close. All the listeners know. Trust me. Thank you. And here's my other favorite part of the book where uh, Peter's talking about covering a war. uh, And in the Middle East, he goes, as the bombs flew in, I thought to myself, what would Ben do at this moment? <laughs> what advice would he impart? No, I'm just kidding. Peter didn't mention any of that. I didn't make it in the book, Peter Copeland. I know, but you did help train me, and I appreciate it. You really did help train me. All right, well, time out. Thank you for saying that. It's not necessary, but D, can we uh, send that around the world? Uh, I, you did help train me. Uh, actually, Peter bumper and I- Bumper sticker. A bumper sticker. Uh, went to college together. I'm, I'm older than him. I'm older than everybody. And uh, when I was a senior, he was a, a sophomore, but you were the editor. I was. There's something weird about that right there, Peter. How did you get to be the editor? And I was just a, a baby reporter. I think no one else wanted to do it for some reason. Yeah. But you were more experienced than I was, and I definitely learned from you. All right. God bless you for saying that. I can't recall uh, how much experience I had. I was... Uh, I just well, not was much there. more than I did, I but that. you had been there four years, and we all learned... By doing it. That was a fun thing about the college paper. All right. Before, before, let's not go all the way back to college. Let's talk in general terms what your book is about. And then I have some specific questions I want to ask. But explain to people, it's called Finding the News, Adventures of a Young Reporter by Peter Copeland. Uh, tell folks a little bit about what you cover in this book. A long time ago, I was going to speak to a bunch of journalists in Florida at Florida International University. 
and my son, who was about 10 or 12, was riding along with me. And I said, what should I talk to the student journalists about? Should I talk to them about how to do an interview, uh, how to write the lead of a story or ethics? And he goes, no, 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 just tell them stories. So that's the origin of the book. I, I went back and, and told the interesting stories of things that happened to me while I was covering stories in the first really 10 years of my career, which I considered myself a cub reporter at the time. And like kindergarten, when you're a cub reporter is when you learn everything that matters. And you went on, of course, uh, you were the, um, he's a former editor and general manager of Scribs Howard News Service. Uh, and uh, you went to uh, El Paso, Texas. That's where you uh, made your name in journalism. But you got your start, your first uh, journalism job, professional journalism job, other than bossing me around in the college newspaper, uh, which you weren't paid for, so you're technically not a professional, but you were very good at bossing me around. Uh, your first paid professional job was here in the city of Chicago. You were about 21 years old, 22 maybe, just got out of college, uh, and uh, you were working for the City News Bureau, and you still have friends from the City News Bureau, I should just say this, uh, when Peter came to the Sun-Times, uh, to uh, that's where our studio is, to do this interview, you said hello to Marino Don. Tim Novak, people that work for the Bright One, that work for the Sun-Times, that you met way back when in the early 80s. Uh, talk about uh, a kid fresh out of college, 22 years old, or whatever you were, working for the City News Bureau. But first off, I'm guessing all of your bosses thought you're a pain. <laughs> That's correct. Robert Mueller agrees with you, okay? Uh, yeah. Oh, my. Could you imagine dealing with me? Yeah, no. <laughs> but yeah. working in a newsroom, it's, it's a little like different. That. Yeah. So, but so I, uh, <laughs> out of college, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I accidentally fell into a job at the City News Bureau of Chicago, which does not exist anymore, but was a great legendary boot camp for journalists. It was started in the late 19th century to cover cops and fire news basically for the many newspapers that were in Chicago at the time. And it also was a training ground for young reporters. So I started working nights and weekends. My weekend, my days off were Tuesdays and Wednesdays, I remember. And I worked from 5 p.m. until 2 a.m. and I covered cops. I basically hung out at a police station and waited for things to happen. I called around to other police stations, firehouses, called the morgue. We had to call the morgue every two hours to ask if there were any bodies and then try to figure out if there was a story behind it. It was great training. Uh, it was very hard, demanding work because we all were young and inexperienced and made mistakes, but we learned from the mistakes and the, the sort of, you know, getting yelled at by an editor is, uh, a searing experience <laughs> that sticks with you and you hopefully won't make the mistake again. Uh, there's uh, many anecdotes, and as Peter says, his book is a collection of stories uh, about his days uh, covering various important events. But a couple of anecdotes that stood out in mind uh, about your days at City News is the fire uh, that opens the book, your coverage of a fire, and then your coverage of Mayor Byrne kicking out uh, the Tribune reporter uh, from the city newsroom, uh, the, the, the city hall press room, which is uh, like a, a significant, mo iconic moment. Nobody cares about it, Peter Copeland, in the world, except for 
old time Chicago reporters. When I read that thing, oh, dude, I remember when Bob Davis got kicked <laughs> out. I remember right. that. I can't believe yeah. Mayor Byrne did that. Yeah. So we'll we'll take a deep dive on both okay. of them. We'll hold okay. off on uh, uh, Mayor Byrne because that story is like a parable of journalism. It should be taught in journalism classes, I think. But before we do that, talk about the fire. It's a very um, uh, resting uh, story, folks, uh, that opens up the book. Uh, Peter Copeland, young Peter Copeland, covers his first major fire. Talk about it. I had been a reporter for four days, which meant I had been following a more senior reporter named Theo Stamos for four days. And I watched her cover stories and copied her, basically. And on the end of the fourth day, she said, well, I guess you're done. You're trained. Uh, See you later. (laughs) And I went back, headed towards the office. We couldn't take cabs. We weren't allowed to. They didn't pay for cabs. And I didn't have a car. So I was waiting for the bus. I saw smoke to the west, and I knew from Theo that if you see something, say something. So I looked for a payphone. We also carried pockets full of dimes, and I had memorized the office phone number, found the payphone, put the money in City News. I said, I see smoke. It, it looks like in Uptown. And the guy who answered said, yeah, there's a fire coming in now on Winthrop. Go. So I ran as fast as I could, and I got there before the, really the fire engines got there. I, I could hear them coming, but I, I, I ran around this corner, and there's a four-story apartment building. There are flames coming out of the top, and it was so hot that people were leaning out the windows to get away from the heat, and some of them had jumped. Other people were throwing babies and kids down four stories to people that were below and were catching them. I just ran towards the building and started taking notes. I, it was so cold. It was one of those Chicago days in February. It was so cold the pen wouldn't work on the paper, and I, I rubbed it to get it going. And I just started taking these random notes down the page, and then I knew I had to get to a phone because Theo, my trainer, told me again, if, it doesn't matter what you know or what you see. It matters what you file, what you tell everybody else. So I banged on doors until a lady opened the door and I I saw the phone behind her and I kind of just ran on top of her and she was okay with it. And I grabbed the phone, called the office and I, the operator said, I'm going to give you a rewrite. In those days, the young reporters didn't file stories. We called in the facts and another reporter, a writer, a rewrite, wrote the story up. And then an editor would look at it, another editor, and then it would go out to the papers and the TV and the radio. I got the rewrite, Holly Gilbert, and she, I started saying, well, there's people jumping out of the window. There, there's, a, there's a guy, he's on the ground, he broke his legs, he's dragging himself through the snow with his arms to get away from the fire. And, and she says, how many trucks and how many pumpers? I'm like, do you not hear me what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. And then long pause and she says, okay, a truck is the one that has the ladders. The pumper is the one that has the hoses. Fine. So I looked out the window. I could see the whole scene from this apartment. And I told her how many trucks and how many pumpers. And then she asked me a bunch of other questions. Like, what's the address of the building? I didn't know. What time did it start? I didn't know. How many injured? Don't know. Where are the injured going? Don't know. So she said, just write down all these questions. You need to get answers. Go find the chief. He'll tell you. And then she says, last word of advice. The chief is wearing a white hat. Okay. 
So I run back outside. There are all these firefighters now, and they're yelling and, and breaking things and hoses and ladders. And I see this guy standing off to the side, and he's old and weary-looking and, and stern, and he's got a big coat on and a white hat. So I went over, <laughs> and I think, okay, I got my guy. I take out my notebook. Chief, what do we got here? And he looks at me with pity, contempt, really. And he says, son, I'm not the chief. I'm the chaplain. <laughs> like, come on. You got the white hat. So he said, yeah, but it has the red cross on it. I didn't see that. He said, the chief is over there. And he points me to this even more stern looking guy. So I walk over. But now I'm confident I got the chief. Got my notebook, got my pen. Chief, what do we got here? What the bad word, bad word, bad word? What the bad word, bad word do you think I got here? I got my guys inside. Now get the bad word, bad word out of here. I know we're on a podcast, but I'm not going to say what no, he really said. Good. It was it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> he was really mad. And I just shriveled away. And I didn't know what to do because I had to get answers to the questions. Right then a van pulls up and a whole TV crew piles out of this van. In those days, a TV crew was four people. It was a camera operator, a sound guy, and a producer and a reporter. So they all come out. The sound guy has this big, long boom mic, and he points it like a joust at the chief's head, and he goes over towards him, and the chief sees then the red light on the camera. All of a sudden, he's Mr. Media Relations, right? Uh, yes, uh, we have a fire, and you know my men are engaged. And he's, the reporter starts firing out all these questions, and the chief is answering them back. Exact same questions that Holly told me to get in almost the same order. So I just wrote it all down. I ran back to the phone, called it into Holly, and she gave me another list of questions. I ran back out. And then now there's 15 reporters asking the chief questions. I never asked him another question except, what do we got here? That was my only question. I just wrote down the answers everybody had. After four or five times of this, they had the fire under control. I had basic information. I went back to the office, and in those days, a newsroom was like a factory. It, it was loud. There were big teletype machines, typewriters, police and fire scanners. And we also had the all-news radio going all the time. So I met Holly, the rewrite, for the first time, and I saw on her desk all these pages where she had written up the raw facts I had given her and turned it into a good story. And it was organized and clear, but it also captured the drama that I saw. Mm -hmm. So I'm standing there looking at her and looking at my story and our story. And then I hear on the radio, a story about the fire and the announcers reading a story about the fire. And it's my story. It's the exact words that I had filed to Holly. And then she had put on the wire and coming back at us over the radio. That was a great moment. And I thought, this is it. This is what I want to do. And hooked you. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so many elements of that tale that you just told now, and as it's told in the book as well, uh, that speak to what journalism was and is. And so let's just deal with one that just pops into my mind. The notion that it matters how many trucks and pumpers there are. I mean, it literally matters. It, it to the conventions of journalism at ta as taught in 1980 or 81, whatever that was that you were doing it. But realistically, Peter, 
Who cares how many? There's people jumping out of a freaking window. <laughs> how many pumps do you have? But you know what? A reporter, that's 101. You got, you fill in that blank. Now, nowadays, just think about this. I, when you were telling the story, I'm thinking if it were today, it could be anybody with an uh, iPhone capturing that moment of people jumping out of the window, pu- putting it on Facebook or social media, getting a Twitter, a gazillion hits, that person would have captured the story. So what role does the journalist in that moment play anymore? Do you follow me? What role does a journalist play in the telling of that story in the year 2019? I would say now the journalist plays more of a role of putting it in context. A lot of times when we see those cell phone videos, it's like looking at the world through a straw. That, right, you would be tight shot, tight shot, tight shot on the flames and on people jumping, but you wouldn't have the bigger picture of the entire building, how many people were involved, how did it start? Um, But yes, it has taken that urgency and the immediacy away from reporters. And I, I spent a lot of time, for example, trying to file, like trying to find a phone, especially when I was overseas trying to communicate to the office to get, I had all this good information, but it was very difficult to get it across. And I never was able to transmit photos and certainly not video. So all of that's a great improvement, but I, I'm, I'm hesitant to give up on reporters now. That's but I, I, I still believe that there's a role, but maybe it's a, a role of curating some of that information. I'm with you 100% hesitant to give up on reporters. I That was not where I was going with that story. Uh, it's just that the role of reporters clearly changed uh, in this in this age. And I think you're absolutely right. You're like a little context, you know, maybe the, the landlord uh, has been in court bef- uh, for for viola- violations. Uh, or maybe the fire hydrant doesn't work and you can't get the, you know, the... Uh, the water to put out the fire. I mean, there's many things a reporter can take the deep dive in. And then the human element story, Peter. Just yeah. like your book, I'm not giving it justice because I want everybody to buy the book and read it. Thank you. Uh, and it's called uh, Finding the News, Adventures of a Young Reporter by Peter C-O-P-E-L-A-N-D. Just throwing that out there. Thank you. Uh, and uh, but tells there's a there's a lot of images uh, in the story you tell of, of the people that you meet and the words that you hear and how the impact they have on you. So I think a reporter can also shape uh, that aspect. We've lost that, if I could sound like an old guy, Peter. Back in the day, there would be columnists. Part of their job would be to go on the scene and give write a story about what happened on the scene. That doesn't exist. It doesn't even exist in the sports pages anymore. That element of journalism seems uh, to have uh, to die to have died, and uh, so I do believe there's still a role for a reporter. But right now, it seems as though we're not quite certain how much of a role we can afford. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, un- unfortunately, when people talk about the news or they complain about the news, they're often talking about people who are talking about the news and what they think about the news or worse, how they feel about the news. It's not really about the news. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not people providing new information. It's not people telling you something you didn't know. It's people commenting on what's been reported already. Mm-hmm. And that's what's frustrating to people. I, 
both of us were trained in the old school of, you know, get the facts first and then we can comment on them or probably other people will comment on them. But our job is really just to get the facts. Uh, well, that's interesting facts. You've now referred to facts several times. I put it down uh, in the age of Trump. What are facts? But before we go into that bigger question, uh, the second anecdote uh, that you relate, which I really think is worthwhile uh, taking a deep dive in, has to do with that moment in your life, your very young life, when you were at the desk, when the phone call came in uh, from Jay McMullen, who was the husband of Jane Byrne. A lot of our younger listeners out there are going to help you out in here now. A little history lesson. Jane Byrne was the mayor of the city of Chicago from 1979 to 1983 when a young Peter Copeland was working at City News Bureau. So she was running the city when young Peter moved to Chicago to cover Chicago. And all right, take it away there. You're at, uh, tell the story as you tell it in the book. It was a weekend night. It was very quiet. We were just sitting around the office and the phone rang. It was Jay McMullen, her, the mayor's husband, who I knew everyone knew. He had been a Sun, Chicago Sun-Times reporter. He was on leave when he was married to the mayor. But he used to joke that he could scoop the Tribune just by rolling over in the morning, which was not very classy, but it, <laughs> it does reflect the spirit of competition among Chicago reporters. I believe the exact quote was rolling out of bed in the morning, but whatever. <laughs> I, uh. He um, was mad. He was often mad. And it was because of a story that was in the Sunday Chicago Tribune about something the mayor had done and a criticism of one of her programs. And it was a pretty big investigative story about the mayor. He was furious and uh, it was an unfair story and it was typical Tribune and they were always attacking the mayor and he didn't like it. And then I heard this voice in the background egging him on and throwing <laughs> stuff out at him to you know, tell him this and tell him that. And so it's the mayor in the background. So then the two of them are on the phone and they're so mad at the Tribune that they say, well, we sh we're not going to cooperate with the Tribune anymore. And in fact, the City Hall press room, where all of the news organizations in the city have a desk, that is city property. And I'm the mayor, so I can kick them out of there. So Tribune out of the press room, out of city property, because it's my property as the mayor. And... No cooperation with Tribune reporters, no access to city records, no city officials are going to talk to them. It's done. Over. Fine. I'm typing it all up, taking my notes. I really didn't get a word in edgewise because they were ranting. They were really mad. I mean, they were often mad, but this was especially fierce. I typed it all up. I wrote the story. I gave it to the person on the desk was edited and then it was sent out and I knew it was a pretty good story I had no idea how it was going to blow up though so the whole thing the whole town went crazy that the mayors kicked out the tribune and the media of course all said that she couldn't do this and you know we have a right to be there that's not the mayor's property it's the people's property and we were right in this case so on Monday all of the media in town is there with cameras and people who normally didn't even cover City Hall showed up and they all gathered around Bob Davis, who was the Tribune reporter, to see if he would show up that day. And he 
was normally casual that day he wore a tie because he knew everything everybody was going to be looking at him and big headlines uh about this it was it was the the big story of the day so the mayor then has a press conference and says all right well you know yes i'm i am i am concerned about the tribune's coverage but that this is a big misunderstanding. I I never said we were going to cut off the Tribune's access. I never said we were going to not give them city records. Okay, we did say they they couldn't have rent free space in the press room anymore. But all that other stuff, I don't know where you got that stuff from. And that's when my stomach just tightened up because they got it from me. It was my story. So then the Tribune called my boss and said, you know, do you stand by your story? And my boss said yes. And they said, well, did you tape the conversation with the mayor? No, but I have my notes. So I had to type up my notes of the, try to make the verbatim conversation. And it was clear in my head. It was such a memorable moment and it, it just happened. So I was able to recreate the conversation. I typed it up. It ran in the Tribune, the whole back and forth. They took the transcript and put it in the paper. Yeah, yes. And because the mayor now was trying to back out of it and... She was, well, the mayor and Jay were very good at Chicago politics. And I was a kid. I was not very good at it. And I felt like I had just been hit by a fastball. And I didn't, I didn't know what to do because I, I didn't, I wasn't wrong. My story wasn't wrong, but she was now denying it and calling me a liar. And no one that I could remember really had ever called me a liar, let alone the mayor of my city. <laughs> So it was uh, upsetting and there was no proof and she just moved on. I, I still go over that and, you know, could I have done it better? Should I have written it differently or did I make a mistake? And I don't, I don't think I did, but pretty sure the mayor forgot about it about an hour later. She, she made her point. She sent a strong message to the Tribune and then was able to appear magnanimous by saying, I, you know, fine, come back. Fine, Bob, love you. And everybody moved on. Well, I think it's a great story in terms of uh, a training lesson for journalists, not just uh, baby journalists just breaking in the game, but any journalist. Uh, I see parallels all the time. And today's with the Trump administration, just the other day, uh, Mulvaney, Mick Mulvaney, who is the chief of staff to President Donald John Trump, uh, was giving a press conference or talking to reporters, uh, and he stated uh, that effectively there was a quid pro quo between the uh, in, uh, Donald Trump and the president of Ukraine regarding uh, digging up dirt on Joe Biden in exchange for aid to Ukraine. That story goes out, blows up, even bigger than your revel- revelations about Jane Byrne and Jay McMullen, and that day... Peter, that very day, Mulvaney comes out. I didn't say, I, he denied he said what everybody said he said. Now, that is such a blatant example of what you experience firsthand. I don't know how reporters, how do you deal with this? You know, what's your advice to young reporters? Like somebody tells you something straight up to you. And then they turn around and say, they didn't say it. It didn't happen that way, and people are starting to doubt you. And so you always said you're you're trained while well, you're a reporter. You're not get you're not the story. Don't be a part of the story. But suddenly, Peter Copeland, young Peter Copeland, 22 years old, is 
the story. You're part of the story. So what's your advice to young journalists in dealing with something like this? The problem is that you become a controversy and then people remember that there was a controversy rather than the actual facts of the story. And so politicians know to do this, to create smoke around something and then people see the smoke and they forget about the fire. So there's really, I mean now, and even what's funny is that I didn't have that on tape. Now, like the example you mentioned, that that was on TV and and they still deny it. So I don't know. And I, the Washington Post has kept a running tally of all of the, what they call lies and misstatements of the president. And you could, you could argue about individual ones, but there's quite a large number of them over the, the last couple of years, but nothing really has changed. I think we always thought our job was to expose things and put them out there and then people would do the right thing. Now it seems that even with all of this information out there, it doesn't have an impact and uh, reporters get frustrated and they keep trying and trying and trying. And I'm not sure what the, the best advice is really, except that's all we got is the facts. And you can um, argue about the significance of them, but at the core, there's a set of facts. There are a set of things that are true. It's our job to find them and point them out. So I would say you just got to stay on it. But yes, it is more difficult now. Were there any consequences uh, that you experienced as a result of the mayor of the city of Chicago essentially calling you a liar? No, thankfully, my bosses uh, backed me up. And that's a that's a really good question, because um, people do make mistakes. Reporters do make mistakes and they should be punished for them. And if a reporter repeatedly makes mistakes, they should be fired. If they ever deliberately make up a story, they should be fired. So in my case, my boss trusted me and. Uh, I'm grateful for that, that they believed in me. Well, it's a, it's a classic story. And I did not know until I read your book that you were the conduit. Only uh, because I answered the phone. Yeah, you answered the phone. <laughs> I know that story about Davis getting kicked out of the newsroom and everybody's yeah. showing up and the guy wearing yeah. a tie and, uh, uh, and all those other, until this day, until I read your book, uh, Finding the News. Well, Adventures I, of Young I sat next to Harry Golden Jr., who was, uh, a legend. Uh, he was the Sun Times reporter who competed against Bob Davis of the Tribune, and he he was uh, small, like a welterweight, and he had a face like a hawk. It was a sharp face, and he had perfect hair. He always had a perfect three-piece suit on, and he sat. His desk was right next to me, and he had a really distinct voice. And I would listen to his calls because he was always breaking these big stories, and so I learned from listening. And sometimes overhearing his calls. So one time the phone rings and Harry says, uh, no, 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 I, I love the city. No, I, I, no, I'm not trying to destroy the city. And I, I'm thinking, who's he talking to? Because normally he would just hang up on somebody that was criticizing him. But he, he was taking it. But he was answering back and he kept saying, no, 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 I, I love the city. I, I love the city the same way you do, Madam Mayor. So he was so dealing with it. It was Jane Byrne yeah. uh, again calling and complaining. So she complained about the Tribune, but she also complained about the Sun Times. Uh, so you were in, in good company. Uh, and then the, the 
Peter's stay in Chicago was relatively brief uh, in the total uh, of, of his life. Uh, he moved on to El Paso, Texas, as I said, uh, and wound up covering wars, covering national foreign politics, international politics, etc. cetera. Uh, you were uh, covering the, um, the first Gulf War uh, in 1991. Got a lot of time has passed in our lives, uh, Peter Copeland. Yeah. Uh, the first Gulf War in 1991. And now you, you talk, and you said this even before we were on the mic, Peter, that you really, you stick by an old code. You believe in uh, holding to that code and holding to the facts uh, and reporting the facts as you see them. Uh, so much about the wars that we've lived through, you and I have lived through in our lives. It, in the aftermath, we realize that the f- things that were presented to us as facts were not in fact facts, that in many ways they were creations, myths put out by the president's men or and women to um, gin up support for a war that maybe there, wouldn't, there was no real need for. When you look back at the wars that you've covered and you think about the wars that you've even lived through, um, do you wish that journalists had done more to expose this or do you think they did the best they could? I would say you could always do more that in my own case, there's no story that I did that couldn't be better if I had had more time and more space and more uh, experience. But generally I would say, because I did participate in the coverage of the, of the second war with Iraq, the 2003 invasion. And I personally wish that I had questioned more. And I, I remember the debate in the administration about, you know, should we invade Iraq or uh, were they building nuclear weapons? If we don't invade, then they'll have a nuclear weapon. I remember those discussions and I wish that I had uh, asked more questions. Some reporters did, but the, the vast majority of the country was moving in one direction. And I think even if the entire press corps had argued against it, 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 would, it might not have mattered. And I've seen that happen where once thing, when I, in the first Gulf War in 1990, 91, that you mentioned, I, I went on TV and I complained about how we were, the press was being restricted, that we weren't being able to go cover the troops and that American men and women were out in the desert getting ready to fight. There were 500,000 troops and we weren't able to talk to them. And so I went on TV and I complained about this. And the next day, my boss said, you should stay off TV because people are taking sides and they're taking the military side. They're not taking the reporter's side. And I kept doing it because I felt like we need to be out there. And, uh, but, but that was a case, again, where the public opinion had rallied behind the troops. I'm sorry, you, you said you kept doing it. Did you kept complaining? On TV. Yes, and wherever I could. And then I finagled a way to get myself out with the troops, and I hooked up with an artillery brigade, and the colonel who was in charge of the brigade, there were 4,000 soldiers. I was the only reporter, 4,000 American soldiers about to go to war with Iraq. And the, the colonel who was in charge said, you can stay with us, and you could do it two ways. I could brief you at the end of the day, and tell you everything that's happened and you can write your story or I can read you in to the battle plan and I'll give you all of the 
classified information that we have about what we're going to do and how the enemy is positioned and our plan. I thought, well, I want door number two. (laughs) He said, well, okay, the hitch with that is if you know all that information, first of all, you can't publish it all because it's secret and you can't leave until the war's over because if you were captured, you could reveal that information that would endanger all of the U.S. forces that are here. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, I, I agree to those conditions and I'll do it. And it was a moment where I had to choose really between being an American and being a reporter. And I chose to be American, that I was going to protect the U.S. military in that I was not going to give away secrets that would put them in danger. And that was a conscious decision and I don't, I don't regret it. Some reporters believe that they shouldn't take sides, that you should be completely neutral. That felt like a case where I couldn't do that. No, uh, you're getting an issue some, uh, about on and off the record. And uh, some old journalist many, many years ago, uh, I think it was Tom Wicker from the New York Times wrote a book about this or about his life in journalism. And he said that he had come to the conclusion, I'm paraphrasing from memory, for all I know, I'm, I'm not even citing the correct journalist, so I apologize. Uh, but he said that in his experience, uh, he, was, he had come to the conclusion that he was no longer going to participate in off the record. That off the record was just a way of silencing reporters from uh, getting at the truth. Because as soon as you go off the record with someone, you're with, you cannot report on what that person tells you. And there may be something really significant that that person has told you. What's your position on this? It depends on the person that you're talking about. There are many people that I've had lifelong relationships with that were off the record, that were sources, and I trusted them over many years. And I felt it was worth the trade-off to protect their identity. So, and one thing that people... Some people misunderstand when we, when reporters say anonymous sources told us or unnamed sources, we know who they are. They're not anonymous to us. Often they're friends or people that we've worked with a long time, but to get the information, we protect their identity. And I have done that many times with people. The, the danger with that and the the same, the same feeling I had when I was with the artillery brigade. So I had agreed to join this artillery brigade. My biggest fear was that they would do something bad, that they would commit a war crime or they would make a mistake. And then I would have to report it because they had taken me into their confidence and I had agreed to these rules. But if they did something like that, then all rules would be off and I would have to report it. So the same is true when you have a long time source that you're protecting, if that person you find out then is involved in some activity that's wrong or criminal, then you have to report it. And then, uh, then you have to decide about, you know, the things that you were told in the past. And, and I even take off the record to the grave. I, I don't think there's really a statute of limitations on it that I've protected my sources even when they're gone. Wow, man, you are old school, Peter Copeland. The guy's dead. What difference does it make? Uh, it's a question of honor. 
All right, you're honoring uh, you're honoring your word that you well, yeah. off the record means off the record. Uh, so I guess it's okay for let's say Woodward and Bernstein to confirm that Mark Felt was deep throat because Mark Felt re- revealed it. So right. once he did it, right? Uh, but it's a shame, man. I don't know about that. I, I'm just asking you to think about that as you're making your way across the country on this book tour, uh, whether. You're doing a disservice to truth. You say you want to get at the facts. You say you want people to understand what's going on. Uh, and yet if you abide by the off-the-record requests of a person who's dead, you are concealing the truth long after the concealment matters. Do you follow what I just said? Yeah, but usually it's something... Let's say that I have a source in the Navy and they're telling me something about the Army. It's not usually they're saying, I'm telling you off the record that I just robbed a bank. They're telling you off the record that that other guy robbed the bank. And then you go to try to pin down that the guy really did rob the bank and you got him. And it doesn't matter really where the original tip came from. But now this is a question in the whole impeachment investigation about where did the tips come from. So I see your point. And I had... I didn't always go off the record. And there, there are different things like sometimes we would try to stop the White House from bringing out an official who we all knew and saying, you can talk to this person in a group off the record. That, that always seemed uh, forced and fake but because everybody knew who the person was. But these were cases where I had developed sources over many years and many stories and even different countries. And they were people I trusted. And I, they told me things because they knew they wouldn't be exposed. Mm-hmm. But yes, you are taking a risk when you do it. And also you're taking a risk that you'll be manipulated because um, if you're protecting someone's anonymity, they can feed you wrong information. Mm-hmm. So you're only really as good as your sources. Yeah. Well, my, my argument, which would be a, a topic for a different time, uh, this is one of my many obsessions but I'm about to reveal to you, Peter, I'm treating you like a therapist, uh, is that I personally was manipulated by Woodward and Bernstein with Deep Throat. I think that as what, there was probably no book slash movie that propelled me into this career more so than that, maybe Boss by Mike Royko, okay? And so there's always this mythical figure, Deep Throat, whose identity was concealed. And I was led to believe that it was a person totally concerned with truth and justice in the American way. And lo, 30 years later, I find it was an FBI operative with a grudge against the FBI because he was frozen out of his the, the, the advancement that he wanted. And I'm like, my whole life. <laughs> This, everything that's shaping is fraudulent. I wish I had known. Woodward, you owed it to us to tell us, at least not allow this myth uh, to exist for all these years. Not that I wouldn't have done what I did, Peter. What else would I was going to do with my life? You knew me back in 1977. But I just believe that there's limitations to the usefulness of off the record and concealing I think it hurts the, your listener or your reader almost as much as it benefits them. I see your point, and especially in Washington, where I worked most of my career. And yes, it's I, I I'm only talking about myself, which is uh, maybe missing your point because 
I didn't have that many off the record sources. We were, we had pretty strict rules about it where I worked. They, we weren't allowed to do it. We weren't allowed to build a story on an anonymous source. The people that I'm talking about were people that pointed me in the direction or gave me documents. One of the things I learned about being a reporter in Washington, there's a ton of paper and it's better to have somebody give you a memo or give you a report than tell you what they heard because you you can then you can say i have this report and uh it was issued by this department and here's what it says and you don't have to worry about who the source was so i i do understand what you're saying and i i do i do share your concern about it and it's it's interesting what you said about watergate i hadn't thought of it that way i guess i was so locked on the fact that the president resigned and I hadn't thought about how it was a big lie. And I, I think they lied to everybody to protect him because it really didn't leak out. They, I mean, who, who's the Woodward they and Bernstein. Oh. Lied to, not lied, but covered up who the identity. Yeah, they of, covered up the identity uh, of Deep Throat. Of Deep Throat. So we right. don't know the motivation of Deep Throat. Right. Uh, and we don't, re, you know, and by the way, I'm not saying that uh, ultimately. Do you think Nixon should still be president? <laughs> from the grave <laughs> well that gets to my favorite question and i'll leave with this who's more insane richard milhouse nixon or donald john trump and i know uh, whenever this is what i was trying to tell you when i've asked this question of journalists in this room before they go i've had more than one journalist say oh, ben you know as a reporter i'm not allowed to give my personal opinion i go come on man we're talking about like saying which day is nicer, the Saturday where there was one cloud or the Sunday where there were no clouds? But that's that old school hold to the code, right, that yeah. you were talking about? Yeah, I would say, Ben, we're all crazy in our own way. You know, that is, Robert Mueller agrees with Peter Copeland. You know what? He's still educating me to these days, to this day, ladies and gentlemen. He may be two years younger than I am, uh, but he's got a lot to offer. Peter Copeland, uh, thank you so much for coming in. The name of the book, one more time, everybody, is Finding the News, Adventures of a Young Reporter, Peter Copeland, C-O-P-E-L-A-N-D. He's in Chicago to do some appearances, and he's going to go back on the road. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for dropping in. Thanks, Ben. That's another bonus show on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Take care, everybody.